Okay, so last week we started on the foundation of the atonement. What does the word atonement mean? Isaiah? Reconciled. Reconciled. Okay, what does reconciled mean? To get right with somebody? Okay. Now, last week I broke down the word atonement for you. Oh, Tracy? At one mint. At one mint. So he's, you're bringing together at one this reconciliation that Isaiah's talking about, two parties that were separated. What are the two parties that are, that are separated? Isaiah? Sinners and God. Sinners and God. That's right. And so the thing that brings the separation is the sin. That's right which is committed by the sinners. Yes. You know, you realize there wouldn't be any sin in this universe if there weren't sinners? If it wasn't for sinners, there wouldn't be any sin. It's a good, it's a, I mean, it sounds pretty common sense, but some people don't get that. They think that, that uh, we sin because we're sinners. But the fact is, we're sinners because we sin. Or we have sinned. Hopefully you're not a sinner anymore. Um, so this is at one mint, and what are the two issues that need to be taken care of by the at one mint, the atonement? There's two things that need to be taken care of. There's two problems that sin causes. Anybody? We've mentioned one of them already. There's a separation between the two parties. The offending party and the offended party. There's also another thing that, that is brought upon the offending party, the sinners, by their sin. What's that? What do they deserve for their sin? Judgment. Judgment. Justice. And so the atonement must take care of these two things. The justice must be satisfied in some way, not necessarily an equal satisfaction that would be by punishing the sinners, there has to be some kind of satisfaction to that. And it also has to be a, a bridge between the separation. It takes away this thing. Sin's not really a thing, though, is it? it? takes away sin that is the cause of the offense and causes the person, the offending party, to cease their sinning. So it must take care of those two things. It must cause the, the offending party to cease their sinning. It must cause the forgiveness of the offended party. So he doesn't pour out his justice upon the offending party. And we talked about Old Testament shadows. We talked about, started that last, we're going to finish up Old Testament shadows this week. <laughs> what is a shadow? Just in natural terms, what is a shadow? Josh? Like a, a, gray, dark a gray, dark reflection. Okay. Does it give you somewhat of a picture of what the person giving that shadow will look like? Okay. What if the uh, the sun's going down and you're standing and the sh your shadow is cast, you know, 50 feet out from you? Is it going to be a real accurate depiction of you? No, it will not. But as the as the sun's at its highest point and it's the, the shadow gets closer to you, it gives a better reflection, so to speak, of what you you look like in actuality. So the Old Testament shadows they're meant to point towards the one who they're shadowing, which is Jesus Christ. They're meant to point towards him. The closer you get to Jesus in his manifestation in the flesh, God coming in the flesh, his revelation in the flesh, you get to see what he's really like, but the closer you get to him, the more details you get. 
the more, more revelation you get from these shadows. What are some of the shadows we went through last week? What's the first one we went to in, in the Garden of Eden? Remember that one? What's that again, brother? Yeah, Genesis 3. Now, what, what was the shadow? Josh? Jesus will have victory. So we see, it's almost like you're reading a book and there's a story, but there's some foreshadowing beforehand to tell you what's going to happen at the very end. And you get a picture of the very end, which we don't get to thousands of years later through John's, uh, Jesus' revelation to John, that there's going to be victory. We see a, a complete picture of it in Revelation, and we'll see the fulfillment of it shortly, I'm sure. But uh, in Genesis 3.15, you see that even though as human beings, Adam and Eve, were first ones that were defeated by Satan and by his ploys. We see that the seed which shall come, which his heel will be bruised, but he shall crush the serpent's head under his feet. He shall do that. And then we see um, shortly later in that same passage, what else do we see a shadow of? Or Jeff? Blood was required. Blood was required. And when that blood was shed, it was the blood of an animal, and what did it do for the two that sinned? covered them. They covered them. Because they weren't covered properly. They tried to cover themselves up by their by their own works. And it didn't work, did it? But God providing whatever animal, it doesn't say what animal it was, whatever animal he shed to cover them up properly, he provided that. And then we went to Genesis 4 and we saw that Cain and Abel gave sacrifice and God wasn't pleased with Cain's sacrifice. Because his heart wasn't right. So it goes to tell you, even though Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices to God, they both knew they were supposed to do that, even though they might have been doing the right thing, bringing the right kind of sacrifice, that because Cain's heart wasn't right before God, did it do him any good? It didn't do him any good at all. This is what you see if you read through the Old Testament, when God is displeased with the sacrifice of the Israelites. He's displeased them not because they're giving sacrifices, he doesn't want them to give sacrifices, because the law declares he should give sacrifices. But it's because of the people's hearts when they come before God to offer the sacrifice. Then we also saw the uh, story of Abraham and his son Isaac. What did you see in there for shadows for Jesus Christ? His only son, willing to lay down his only son. God gave his only son for you. That's what he did for you. Have you responded to that properly? What else did we see in that, uh, Bro Jeff? He is the ark, yes, he is the ark. We see that back in the story of Noah in Genesis chapter 8. He is the ark of salvation. Beginning to the story of Abraham and Isaac, what else did we see in that, in that story that was very integral to the being a shadow of Christ? We know it was, it was Abraham and Isaac it was somewhat of a picture of God the Father and God the Son, but his brother uh, Sean came afterwards. He really can only go so far with that. Right. This the son Isaac was a lad, which was like a young man, and we don't know exactly what his age was, but there, I, I can't imagine that that Abraham was forcing, he's tying him up and forcing. I, I think he's laying his life down. What's the picture of the sun? And then what did God do? But he provided a lamb. 
And this is exactly what Abraham said. He said, God, he said to his son, when his son said, well, where, where's, this, where's the animal sacrifice, father? He said, God will provide the lamb. God will provide the lamb. And Abraham, as we saw in Hebrews 11, he was convinced that even if he did go all the way and kill his son, that God could rise from the dead, which he did in a figurative sense. This is a figurative sense of Christ rising from the dead. And this all happened on the third day after God told Abraham, go take your son, which is more figurativeness there. So, But God provides the replacement so Abraham won't have to sacrifice his son. God provides the replacement, and God provides the replacement for you and me. That we don't get what we deserve, that we could get what we don't deserve. And then we also looked at the Passover. What did you see in the Passover? In Exodus chapter 12. Blood was required. And where was that blood put? Doorposts and a lintel of the house. All three parts. And if you were in the house, you were safe from the wrath of God. If you're outside the house, you were... So there's a condition there, right? In the house, out of the house. What if someone from Israel, a rebellious child, decided at the last second to disobey his or her parents and run out of the house? They would have received the wrath of God. It would have been poured out upon them. But but was was the wrath of God poured out upon that lamb who was killed and whose blood was put on the lintels and the doorposts of the house? His wrath was not poured out. But it was a substitute. But it's not an exact substitute because a the firstborn son dying and a lamb dying, is that comparable in every sense? It's not because God we see later on Jesus talking in the Sermon Mount, he says, Well, you're you have more value than animals. Because we're made in God's image. So it's not an exact sacrifice, but we do see a sufficient sacrifice in God's eyes because He's the one who instituted it. He's the one who said, okay, if you do this, you'll be saved from my wrath. And if you're in the house, which is the picture of being in Christ. And we saw that not only were they saved from the wrath of God, but what else were they saved from? They were delivered from bondage. And so, this is the two, the two things I've been talking about. There's two things that the tomb must take care of. It must deliver you from your sin. I'm not just talking about forgiveness, God not holding against you. I'm talking about delivering you from the practice, the committing of your sin. And so that's a picture there. Being delivered from bondage. And being delivered from the punishment. Those are the two things we see there. And God provides it all. Okay, today we're going to look at um, Exodus chapter 25. It's the first thing we're going to look at. We're going to look at the Ark of the Covenant. Or the Ark of the Testimony. This is that uh, rectangular shaped box that God told the Israelites to make out of acacia wood. And overlay it with gold all around. It would have holes on all four corners for poles to go through. Gold poles and gold holes, ring holes. And uh, it would have two cherubim on top, which there are angels almost basically touching. And then on top of the rectangle is this thing called the mercy seat. Okay, so let's just read Exodus 25, 
uh, starting in verse 17. What I really want to focus on is the mercy seat part. It says, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The face of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. In the ark you shall put the testimony that I, shall, I will give you. And there I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. And then turn to Leviticus 16. Amen. Being in Leviticus 16 a little bit more today, but I just want to touch on this mercy seat issue, which is where the blood on the Day of the Atonement was put. Uh, Leviticus 16 and verse 15. And I'll explain more about Leviticus 16 here in a minute, but verse 15 says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, Bring its blood inside the veil. Do what the blood is do with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So the blood of the bull that was killed for to make atonement for the people of Israel once a year by the high priest was sprinkled and put on the mercy seat. And to give you a picture of why this is referring to Jesus, go to Romans chapter three. Now, we know the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but then eventually, around 250 B.C., it was written, translated into Greek, called the Septuagint. Okay, could everyone say Septuagint? That was the Greek Old Testament. Okay? And the Greek Old Testament, when every time you see the word mercy seat, it's the Greek word halasterion. Okay? Halasterion. Now, Romans 3 and verse 25, talking about Jesus here, it says, Whom God, talking about Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Now, the word translated as propitiation there is the Greek word halasterion, which literally means mercy seat. Christ is the mercy seat. That's what it's saying in Romans 20. Let's, let's read it again. Let's, let's take propitiation out and put mercy seat there. And you see in verse 24, In Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a mercy seat by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So Christ is the mercy seat by which the blood is shed, and provides atonement for the nation of Israel and for anyone who will come in faith, as it says in Romans 3, come in faith, they can have forgiveness, they can have atonement with God, they can have reconciliation with God. And then we also see again in Hebrews 9 and verse 5, and you'll see here that they'll actually translate it as mercy seat here. Hebrews 9 and verse 5, talking about the Ark of the Covenant. 
It says, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, Helesterion. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Because there, is, there was none left at that point in time. The only details we have were found in the Old Testament. But as far as seeing it and sp- speaking about it in those details, we don't have it in person. We've been missing for quite some time. But uh, Christ is the mercy seat. And by his blood being shed, he is the one that provides atonement. So we see in the mercy seat in Exodus 25, that going back there once again just for a second here, we see the cherubim look down upon him, that that is where God meets you and speaks to you. And we know that we have the fullest revelation of God, the clearest picture of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. That He is the full revelation. Remember, these are shadows that are pointing towards Him. So when Christ came in the flesh, it's as if God is speaking with with men. It's Emmanuel, God with us, as Isaiah says. Isaiah chapter 7. Emmanuel, God with us. And he shall save his people from their sin. This is what his name means. Okay, go to Leviticus 16. We're going to talk about the Day of Atonement. Now on the Day of Atonement, when it came to the sins of the people of God, uh, there were two, two goats brought. Okay? And uh, let's, let's go ahead and read uh, the differences between these two goats. In verse 5 of Leviticus 16. And he shall take, talking about Aaron now, he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. Now the ram is for Aaron and for his family to offer up for himself and his family. But the two goats is what we're talking about here. Verse 7. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two ghosts. Two goats. One lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now, the word scapegoat was not employed in this sense until I believe the 15th, 16th century. It was done by William Tyndale. Okay? Now we think scapegoat, we think, uh, uh, we use it in this kind of way. Well, I really did something wrong. I did the crime, but I'm gonna blame it on my friend, and they're gonna be the scapegoat. That's kind of the way we've, we've, in American uses, we use the word scapegoat. Uh, the Hebrew word, uh, simply means entire removal. Entire removal. Okay, so it's kind of like our English way of using scapegoat. Because we, we're entirely removing ourselves from any responsibility in the situation and blaming it upon our friend. There's an entire removal there. Um, but the, in the Septuagint, uh, there's a Greek word that's used for scapegoat that's really not used anywhere else. And it simply means carrying away evil. Or cast out. And if those two things don't describe Jesus Christ, I don't know what does. What did, what did John the Baptist say about Jesus when he saw him coming? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He carries it away. He carries away evil. And we saw, we know in Isaiah 53 that he's, and 52 that he's cast out. He's rejected by all. He's sent out into a parched place where 
There's no one there. He even said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because even God uh, uh, stopped protecting his son. Allowed the world to do whatever they wanted to him for our sake. He was cast out by everyone. Even his own disciples who were with him for day in and day out for three years cast him out. And were scattered like sheep from the shepherd. So let's read on and read about this. Uh, these two goats. Uh, verse 9, And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell, and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. Go down to verse 15 now, because the rest is not talking about what I'm going to focus on today. Verse 15, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the veil, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat before the, sprinkle it on the mercy seat before and before the mercy seat. I, I, some of you may not understand how this is awesome. Let me just kind of give you a picture of what it's set up like, okay? You can imagine no temple yet. We have the tabernacle, kind of like a tent, okay? Imagine a big tent, okay? And uh, only certain people are allowed to go inside this tent, okay, the priest. Now, there's another, like almost like a small tent within that big tent, okay? And this, the, the, this big tent is called the sanctuary or the holy place. The little tent within the big tent is called the holiest or the holy of holies, which only one person was allowed to go in once a year, the high priest, on the Day of Atonement. And in that holiest of holy place, that small tent within the big tent is where you would find the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Testimony. It's where the mercy seat is, where you offer blood upon for atonement of sins. To kind of give you a picture of everything that's going on here. So the high priest would go in there and offer the blood of the first goat, the one that's lot fell to the Lord, offered upon the mercy seat once a year to make atonement for their sins. Go down to verse 20. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And I see in verse 20 that even the holy place itself needs to be atoned for because it's in the midst of a sinful people. So even the place needs to be atoned for. Verse 21. So after he, the live goat is brought to him, it says in verse 21, Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of a goat, and shall send it away out into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Now this right here, once you understand what this is saying here, these few verses of what happens to the scapegoat, okay, the one that carries away evil, the one that's cast out, when you understand that, and then you go to the New Testament, and you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, say. Let's go there for a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now you have a better understanding of what uh, Paul the Apostle is saying here. In verse 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
Let's start in verse 20, actually. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. There's the atonement part. For he made him who knew no sin, sin for us, or to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, we go back to the scapegoat, it makes more sense. Instead of putting a Martin Luther interpretation upon verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5, or putting a John Calvin interpretation upon it and say, well, Christ literally became sinful. Christ literally became a sinner. There is literally a transfer from us to Christ of our sin. We go back to the Old Testament, and we see that uh, he's bearing on himself all the iniquities. Did that goat become a sinful goat? Did you change places with the goat in the sense that the goat became a complete sinner, and you became amoral, like the goat was. No, it's a, it's a symbolic thing. It's a very figurative thing, uh, but it's sufficient in God's eyes to make atonement for your sins. And we see, if we read these scriptures, like Second Corinthians 5, what we should have in mind is the scapegoat. That Christ was our scapegoat. Not in the American use of the sense that we're not taking any blame for anything. We take blame for our sin. That's the reason we repent of it. But we're not held guilty for it any longer. We're not going to be punished for it any longer, you know, as long as we remain in Christ. And that's what we should picture when we, we think about Second uh, Corinthians 5 and other passages like that. When it talks about, let's go to First Peter 2. These same things. Starting in verse 21. Talking about being called to suffering. It says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who bore, who himself bore our sins and his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. So talk about bearing our sins are becoming sin for us. What you need to picture is a scapegoat. Not this uh, Western understanding of our sins are literally being transferred to Christ. Which is not a Hebrew concept. And it's not a biblical concept when it comes to these things. And then we see in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11 talking about how important blood is. How it should not be eaten how it should not be drank, how it should be revered. And verse 11 says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And I've heard many different uh, Jewish believers in Jesus say that this verse is the crux of all Old Testament doctrine on the atonement. I would agree with that. If you're going to focus on one verse when it comes to the doctrine of atonement, it would be this verse. That the life of the flesh is in the blood, 
and then give it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for there's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And it doesn't mean that uh, Jesus could have cut his finger a little bit and put a couple drops of blood upon the altar. No, when blood was put upon the altar in the Old Testament, it meant the death of whoever's blood that belonged to. So it means the death of Christ was required. The death of the animal was required. He couldn't just went in there and cut his finger and put a couple drops there and kept on living and had been okay in God's eyes. No, it required his whole life because the life of the flesh is in the blood. So he must take the life from the flesh. And in order for it to be a sufficient sacrifice for sins. Go to Hebrews 9.22. If Leviticus 17.11 is the maybe the main verse that you would focus on for the Old Testament atonement system, I'm going to give you the same verse for the New Testament in Hebrews 9 and verse 22. It says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Remission simply means forgiveness. Okay? So without the shedding of blood, without the life taken of another, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so these, if, if you were to pinpoint two verses, Old Testament and New, that really bring to point what the atonement's about, it'd be these two verses, Leviticus 17.11 and Hebrews 9.22. Okay, then turn to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Now at this point, just give you some background. Um, they were going through the wilderness. And at this point, uh, Moses and Aaron had sinned against God by not properly bringing water from the rock. They tapped it instead of just speaking to it like God told them to in Numbers chapter 20. And so God told Moses and Aaron both, you will not go into the land. And Aaron had already died at this point in Numbers 21. And um, so they've already gotten water from a rock two, uh, two separate times up to this point. Two different times they had the miracle of getting water from a rock. Okay? And they've been fed by manna all throughout this time. Just to give you a background. I'll start in verse 4 of Numbers 21. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So, obviously there was food, otherwise you couldn't loathe bread, right? And so they considered manna at this point to be worthless. There is no water. Instead of uh, turning to Moses and asking him for another miracle from God to intercede on their behalf and ask for water from a rock, they just decided to complain about it. So this is God's response to them doing that in verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. So you see a repentance there. They, they're repenting, they're confessing their sins, they're turning away from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, 
when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze, a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So now we see not only repentance, we see faith coming into, into practice here too. Because does a bronze serpent have any power to heal you of a deadly bite? No, it does not. But they're having faith in God's word. They're having faith towards this bronze serpent which God told Moses to make in order to heal them of the results of their sin. Because these these fiery serpents are a result of them complaining to God. Their sin. Uh, go to, to John chapter 3. We all know verse 16, I'm sure. Even hypocrite Christians know verse 16. One of their favorite verses to quote. Of course, they don't quote it properly, and they don't understand it properly either. Let's start in verse uh, 10, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we see... The results of man's sin, which is God's judgment, God's justice, rightly deserves, like the fiery serpents were rightly deserved by the people of Israel, uh, our judgment, which is hell forever, is rightly deserved by us. But God provides a way out if, of course, repentance must be involved. It's not spoken about here, but repentance must be involved. But there's a belief here, there's a faith here, that if you look to the sun, you can have everlasting life. Just as if they looked to the bronze serpent to free them from the, uh, the consequences of their sin, these, and it, it'd be their death, now we see Jesus testifying to us that he's just like the bronze serpent. That there's this condition of faith involved here. That you must look to the sun. You know, because someone can repent of all their sin and live a completely holy life, but if they never trust in Jesus Christ, first of all, they haven't repented of all sin, and secondly, they have no atonement for forgiveness of sins. They have no way of being healed from the consequences of their sin, which is what Jesus provides by his death on the cross. Okay, so what we see today, we see that um, the mercy seat is Jesus. He is the, the mercy seat. That's what Romans 3.25 calls him. That he's the holasterion. And holasterion literally means this. The means which God provides for the removal of the impediments to relationship with him. That's what holasterion means. The means that God provides for the removal of of the impediments to a relationship with him. Now, the removal of the impediments, the impediment is sin. And this is what God has provided. The mercy seat. The Jesus Christ is who he's provided for the removal of your sin. 
And without the removal of your sin, you're still in your sin. And if you're still in your sin, you're still under God's judgment and wrath. There's no hope for you. He is the mercy seat. You can't bypass God's mercy seat. If Aaron would have went into, or some other high priest later on, like his sons, would have went into the holiest of holy places and tried to put blood on one of the cherubim, it would have not have satisfied God. God would not have accepted that. He probably would have struck him dead right there in his presence. So it must be upon the mercy. It must be the mercy seat Jesus Christ. He's the only way, as John 14, 6 says. The way, the truth, and the life. The only way to the Father. And we know that uh, when Jesus died on the cross and gave up his spirit, what happened to that curtain that around the holiest of holy places? It was torn in two. From top to bottom. That's what we learned in Matthew. Very good. Torn from top to bottom, and it was so high, no one got up there and tore it. And it was so thick that no man could have tore it. And so the mercy seat, God, Christ provides a way into the presence of God. As Hebrew says so many times. We also saw the, the shed blood of the one goat, and then the scapegoat. How Christ is the scapegoat. How we, his, our sin is figuratively placed upon him. He is the atonement for sins. He's rejected by all. He's led out into the wilderness where he bears our sins takes evil away. He's cast out. And we also see that blood is required, as we've seen already. And that is the blood that makes atonement for sin, which requires the death of the person whose blood is being used. We also see that faith is being required because just as the bronze serpent was lifted up in the desert and people looked to him to be saved from the consequences of their sin, you know, even though they hadn't repented at this point, God didn't take away the fiery serpents, did he? He allowed it to remain. I think a lot of people, when they come to Christ, they're expecting God not only to save them from their sins, but from all of the consequences of their sin, which is not true. If you've committed sin in the past, don't expect for God to take away all those consequences. He allows them to remain at times. He could do that. But he allows them to remain at times. But if they, look, if they look in faith to the bronze serpent, as long as we look in faith to Jesus, he can save us from the consequences of our sin, which is hell. So there's faith, there's repentance involved. And these are some, there are probably some other ones that I haven't touched upon, but these are all the Old Testament shadows I'm going to go through. Next week I hope to start talking about the New Testament and what it says about the atonement. We'll talk about the extent of the atonement. Who it's uh, who God wants it to be available for, who it actually is available for, who it actually applies to, and we're gonna look at a lot of the uh, different words used when talking about the atonement, like ransom and uh, propitiation. We talked about a little bit this week, impute, redemption, or redeem. Uh, all these words, we're, I hope to look at next week or the week after that. But that's it for today. Let's uh, open it up for. Uh, Question. Now, if you have questions, Brother Reggie has a microphone. Uh, don't be scared of the microphone. It won't bite you. It's probably more scared you'll bite it. Um, so let's uh, go ahead and open the floor for questions. Brother Josh. Uh, I have a question. Um, uh, uh, the Velocerion, mm -hmm. how do you spell that? Well, it'd be uh, Iota or an I. Okay. 
uh, with a rough breathing mark over top of it, which gives it a noise. So you have an I with a little C on top of it. And then you'd have uh, an L or a lambda. Uh, then you have an A or an alpha, an S or a sigma, and a T, E, R, I, O, N. I won't even bother saying the Greek word letters if you don't know that yet, but uh, that's the way you spell it. You'd put a, a H in front of it if you are going to spell it in English. So it would be H-I-L-A-S-T-E-R-I-O-N, Halasterion. And there's a big fuss made about this word. I mean, the Calvinists love to use this word to support their penal substitution theory of the atonement, which says that God's wrath was poured out upon Jesus of the cross, which that word does not mean. The word is the same word used in the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, which is translated as mercy seat. And really, I think the New King James translators, you can kind of see their atonement view coming out just a little bit because they want to use this word propitiation instead of mercy seat. Okay? Brother Sean? I guess we might talk about this more next week, but do we have where the word propitiation came from? Like, do you know the origin of it? No, I have not looked at the etymology or the origin of the word. But uh, most people assume it means that you're appeasing God in some way, which it does. I mean, let's face it, the atonement does appease God in some way. God made his law. He's the one who made it. So he says... It takes blood to make atonement for your sins upon the mercy seat, who is Jesus Christ, and that's what it takes. Now, why does he choose that? I don't know. I don't know the mind of God in this issue, but it's, in my opinion, it's just life for life. But it's not, a, it's not an exact substitute because we know that we deserve hellfire for our sins, and Christ didn't go to hellfire to make atonement for our sins. But he was perfect and holy and pure. And so it's sufficient in God's eyes, obviously, since he's the one who said, this is what you must do, this is what's required, and this is the foreshadowing of Christ who is to come. He's obviously satisfied with that in some way. Yeah, it's a, um, a big difference between the Reformer's definition of sin and the Bible definition of sin is that the Bible defines sin as a choice, so it's immaterial. But according to the Reformers, it's kind of like a substance. It's kind of like an entity all by itself that needs to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Bible never shows sin as being that. It's just a bad behavior, bad choice. Yeah. So that's the thing we have to kind of make sure that we were uh, thinking of. Whenever they bring up stuff like, uh, you know, uh, sin has to be transferred, in their mind it's a physical thing that has to be moved somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, of course, the Bible just says it's a choice. Just like you point out with the scapegoat, mm-hmm. uh, they put their hands on the goat. They proclaim the sins, the bad choices that were made, and they send it out. It doesn't mean the goat became a sinner. Right. For, and for the goat to become a sinner at that point, the high priest would somehow have to have all the sins of the people upon him. Because he's the only one touching the goat's head. You know, so all the sin of Israel had to have been transferred to him somehow first, once a year, for him to transfer it over to the goat. If we're talking about literal transfer here of stuff, and, and that's a good point, Tracy, you make, is that it's like in my last foundation I talked about doctrine of man and sin, is that because they see it as that, it's really, in my opinion, the reason why they take 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, they take these things in a literal fashion because that's what they believe about sin in the first place. If they didn't have that definition of sin in their mind, if they knew it was a choice, they knew it couldn't be transferred according to Ezekiel 18, they would never even read that into these passages. They would say, well, I don't understand that, 
let me see if I can go back to the Old Testament to see if I can understand it a little better, and they would have seen the scapegoat. There's no literal transferring of sin here. It's a figurative thing. Guess more you want to say, brother? That's why to point out that um, the uh, snake on a pole is kind of like a, just a trivial thing here. Okay. But it's actually the same symbol they use in the medical field uh, right. for healing. Uh, they use a pole with a serpent on the pole. Hmm. I believe they got that from, from the Bible. That's probably. Uh, so I just want to point that out, that if you look at the symbol for like a pharmacy and uh, different things in the medical field, they have some variation of a serpent on a pole. Yeah. And as Christ is on the pole, the Bible says, or on the, not on the pole, but on the cross, but bringing the figurativeness over, his spouse says, by his stripes you can be healed. Right? He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes you can be healed. All this while he's on the cross, by his shed blood. Does anyone else have questions or things they want to add? Objections? Is everyone understanding? Are you seeing throughout the Old Testament, as you look at these shadows, different principles, different points that are pointing ahead to what we're going to learn in the New Testament? Because the Old Testament is the foundation for what we're going to learn in the New Testament. Josh? Uh, I just wanted to say that I was like, uh, at first, I was confused about the whole atonement thing. Um, uh, I was kind of confused the way you're saying it because uh, I still have the view of sin as like uh, a substance, and it had to be, you know, like literally transferred. So, but now that uh, Mr. Tracy defined that, it, it cleared up a lot of things. So, it, it's more uh, understandable. Not like okay, thanks for saying that. Let's just consider just for a second that sin is a stuff, okay? If sin is a stuff, and it was transferred to Christ, what did Christ literally become? A sinner. Now, if Christ literally became a sinner, where do sinners go? For how long? Eternity. And now, if Christ became a sinner to save us from our sins, and he took our sins, now who's going to save him? You have a great problem. The Bible says the sinless Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. It doesn't say one who became a sinner. Okay? And so you got to be real careful. The things you're going to say, you have to really think it through. That you're, you're basically saying, and people will say this. There's theologians around today, like R.C. Sproul, who will say that Christ literally became a sinner. Not only did he become a sinner, but he became the worst of sinners. The worst of sinners. And let's just, I mean, even if you take the limited atonement view of Calvinism and say that Christ only took upon himself, not the sins of the whole world, but the sins of the people who will get saved. Sins of the elect. Let's say a million people get saved. He took on the sins, literally, of a million people? He just now became the worst sinner there is. Now he deserves to go to hell. Which, Brother Tracy will teach us later on, but some translations will say he descended into hell. But it actually was Hades. And so they, all kinds of this, they kind of piece it together like that, and that's how they come up with these kind of doctrines, like the, the prosperity gospel. They talk about Jesus going to hell and becoming born again. Well, if he literally became a sinner, that would make sense. If Jesus literally became a sinner, it would make sense for him to go to hell, descend actually into hell and suffer there, and need to become born again himself. 
We know that's not true. We know that's not true. Crazy? I just wanted to say, if I remember correctly, I think uh, Martin Luther actually said that Jesus became a sinner. That's something he actually has quoted as saying as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's possible. I can't remember all his quotes. If you, I have a video called From the Horse's Mouth, Martin Luther, and you can... That quote might be in there. If, if he sits the thing, it probably is in there. So. Okay, anybody else? <laughs> 